This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Elspeth Curry, your host today on the channel. This afternoon, we'll be talking to Dr. Jane Stevenson about her new book, Women and Latin in the Early Modern Period, a wonderful account of what and why women learned Latin in early modern Europe and how that relationship changed over time. Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. So to get us started, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more of your own history. Yes. Well, I went up to Cambridge in 1978, which was the 300th anniversary of the first woman to take a PhD, incidentally. Um, But I went to study Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic. And when I got there, I'd sort of lost interest in Beowulf and started getting interested in insular Latin. Now, that that means that I sort of approach Latin as a post-classical person. And the other thing is that uh, working in that quite obscure and remote field, it became quite clear to me that those masses of stuff that nobody had even edited, let alone studied properly, um, it was a field where you sort of took it for granted that you could go to archives and find things. So when I later started getting interested in women's writing, I thought, well, you know, you just go out and look. You don't take it for granted that nothing's there just because everybody tells you nothing's there. So I think that's really the sort of important reason of how I got onto all this stuff. Wonderful. I love the idea of going out and looking and... um finding out what has actually survived, because there's often so much more than we might think. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's how you started with uh, Latin. And what kind of brought you to the early modern world? What was it about women and Latin in this particular time period that has Mm -hmm. caught your interest? Well, when I was um, in Cambridge, I took Peter Dronker's course on medieval women Latinists. And since I knew how to search archives... I sort of went looking. Well, you know, if there's that that much women's activity before 1400, I'd be surprised if it just stopped, even though everybody says, <laughs> oh, it just stopped. Well, why should it? So I kind of transformed myself gradually from a medievalist to an early modernist, um, just because I, it's sort of, you follow the money. I mean, you, you, you follow <laughs> the stuff that nobody's looked at and nobody knows about. Very good. That's uh, inspiring for us all to go out there and look. Um, And in your book itself, you trace the history of women Latinists as much as the historiography of women Latinists, which you sort of touched on then, talking about uh, how there's been some study or there was some study of medieval women in Latin. um, And then people sort of had this narrative that it just stopped. Um, So could you give us a little more about that historiography uh, in the past 50 years or so or uh, over the course of your career? Yes, well, when I, I guess in Manuel, who, who edited, you know, the series editor for this book, um, asked me if I'd look at the historiography, and I, I realised that the key 
year is 1980. Sort of before that, there's there's a blank, and then sort of quite suddenly there was well that particular era of feminism got very interested in you know rediscovery, you know, mm-hmm. produced things like the Barago Press and the Women's Press and so on. Sort of you know the idea of sort of diving into archives and looking looking for women was very much sort of around in in the early 80s. And then crucially in 1983, um, Margaret King and Alfred Rabiel produce um, Her Immaculate Hand, which is a collection of um, stuff by Renaissance Italian women. So um, kind of the life moves on from that. And in 1993, You've got Chicago University Press's The Other Voice in Early Modern Europe, which was dedicated mm-hmm. to discovering forgotten writing by women. Um, incredibly useful series. And uh, if you're interested in English women writers, um, Betty Travitsky started putting women Latinists in her series, The Early Modern English Women, in print. So, and, yeah, and then another thing perhaps not so much directly concerned with Latin, but I was concerned with it, the Perdita project, which was um, looking for women's writing in manuscript. I mean, we found masses of stuff that nobody knew about. Um, so, so, so yes, I mean, there's just this story of rediscovery sort of from about 1980 to 2000. And since then, mostly we've been sort of chewing it and uh, you know, trying, trying to assess it and see how it changes the picture. Thank you. And I know you've played uh, a large role in that yourself with your other works, just bringing to light these women authors who uh, were writing in manuscript and publishing and making that better known to such a broader segment of the of the population. Yeah, um, it's my proud boast that uh, I've spent an entire career writing about people that nobody ever heard of. <laughs> the only, well, it's, well, the plus thing is that by the time I finished, they had heard of them. So that was fine. But uh, <laughs> Very good. Well, to turn to the contents of your uh, new book, um, could you tell us a little bit about women and humanism in Renaissance Italy in particular? Um, so when has the story usually begun? You know, if you if you look at a typical work on this topic, uh, what date would that kind of relationship start? And um, what have you found in terms of when learned women actually start appearing in the historical record? Right. Well, of course, the Renaissance is about the discovery, rediscovery of the classics, um, at which point it became clear that there were a number of women in the first century BC who left significant reputations as writers. So um, very little actually survives. We've got the poems of Sulpicia, um, mm-hmm. but not much else. But but anyway, the, the idea of learning for women, I think, partly comes out of the, you know, the rediscovery of classical Latin. Um, as it happened, the if you if you go to um, King and Rabiel, her, her immaculate hand, which I mentioned in you know from nineteen eighty three, they they focus on the mid fifteenth century generation, which includes women like Alessandra Scala, Isotta Nogarola, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Cassandra Fideli, the so-called Maiden of Venice, um, and so so in that so so what they found essentially were a series of women who are sort of writing letters to each other um, and to men, but sort of mostly letters just saying you know I think you're wonderful and orations saying you know I I think so and so is is wonderful they're, they're it's quite a dull body of material, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and um, so that, then you get some people like Lisa Jardine sort of coming along looking at this and saying, actually, it's a damn dull body of material. Um, you know, the the Renaissance woman is just a sort of ornament to her society and, uh, you know, the productive purpose of this is somewhere around zero. Um, well... I was I was starting from a rather different place, and what I realised that 
is that by the time you get people like Cassandra Fideli popping up, there'd been women studying Latin for, well, studying Latin seriously in, in the sort of humanist way for at least a generation and possibly two, but very little of their what they produced survived, which is, is why um, King and Rabiel sort of focused on the people, you know, who had left a surviving oeuvre. And approaching this as a, as a historian, it struck me that um, the, the wives of Condottieri had to learn how to run a country because a, a Condottieri is, is a professional mercenary who's also a nobleman. Um, and a condotta from the beginning of the 15th century would take you away from home, you know, running an army on behalf of somebody else for anything up to two years. Now, if you leave your own territories in charge of your brother, let's say you may not get them back. If you can leave them in charge of your wife, she's the one person whose interests actually march directly along with yours. She's got the same state you have in handing it on to your common children. So, you know, so with that in mind, the condottieri start educating their daughters. They start marrying educated women who are capable of writing a Latin letter, of creating a strategy of, of uh, acting as diplomats, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And because this was of absolutely direct practical use to them. So women's, the first women Latinists in Renaissance Italy are, are highly functional. Um, unfortunately, their function was, you know, they, they, they were writing letters, but, but much of what they were, they were achieving was purely oral. You know, the, the, the grand sort of diplomatic arts of persuasion and so they don't leave a lot of evidence. And I think that's, so, that's skewed the picture quite um, markedly. So what we're seeing is really education for political use um, and oral use more than uh, crafting an artful letter or something like that. Yeah. And, and then, then what happens is, is that this sort of flows out of the circles where you know, Latin is of utility and, you start to get the idea of the the woman as the ornament of, of her society. So um, Cassandra Fideli is addressed as O decus Italiae Virgo, you know, mm -hmm. virgin, the glory of Italy. And sort of, you know, a learned lady is a sort of totem figure for, for her society. And um, so... I, so that's, that's a kind of secondary development as far as I see. Interesting. So how do you think that these earlier women, um, these women coming out of the condottieri households who are Latinate, how do you think they change the way that we look at the more famous female humanists of 15th century Italian Renaissance? Um, um, well, I think you, you have to... You have to nuance... Um, the sort of Lisa Jardine, Tony Grafton argument that um, you know, Latin for women was always useless and say, so actually, there are people for whom Latin is jolly useful. And what I find, you know, if you if you really sort of drill down is, is that the sort of noble families I'm talking about um, go on educating their daughters for generations. So... You know, in the 16th century, Vittoria Colonna is the most famous mm -hmm. poet in Italy. I mean, she's much published. She's a friend of Michelangelo's. You know, she's she's a very sort of high-profile figure. She's um, six generations down from Isotto Nogarola in direct descent. Every mm -hmm. single generation between um, Isotto Nogarola and um, Colonna, the you have educated Latin literate women, you know, so, so you get these sort of family traditions where they just go on doing it. And, um, you know, the purposes for which it 
is is used across changes with society more generally. Mm. Yeah, thinking about society uh, in general and and the reception of these Latinx women in their own era, um, how did contemporary humanists like Leonardo Bruni or Martino uh, Filatico uh, respond to these women? Um, do we see pushback? Do we see uh, praise? What's the response there? Praise, praise and welcome. Um, there ought to be more of this. I mean, so, so um, you know, Bruni writes the, the first treatise on why women ought to be educated and Filetico writes a, a work which is effectively in, in praise of um, Batista um, de, de Montefeltro, you know, the wife of the, mm-hmm. the great Federigo. Um, well, humanists are... Humanists are partly doing this because they're strongly in favour of there being more jobs for humanists. Ah, gotcha. In, so, um, so they're, they're, they will argue for more and better education at the drop of a hat. I mean, they'd argue for educating donkeys, you know, if anybody, if they thought donkeys were capable of paying them. So, um, so the thing is that. Education is excellent. Education makes you more excellent in yourself. Uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. this is a, an absolutely key humanist tenet. But um, what it's trying to do is is to ensure that um, you know, more and more and more people with money are prepared to take a humanist into their household. So educating women is, is grist to the mill. Very good. So and, and you, you know, you, you you find I, I can't think of a single humanist who uh, says says otherwise. When it comes to money, I suppose they're they they will do um, whatever it takes um, to get a job. Well, it's highly um, prefer- um, highly competitive. Yes. You know they any any humanist, you know they want to get a university position. They want to be great man's secretary. Sort of, so so. I mean, they spend an awful lot of time just sort of oiling around anybody with money, and and um, so promoting education for women is, I think, just part of that package. So that's the Italian context. Um, over in France, what, or rather, who do we see? What women do we see receiving a humanist education? Um, and what seem to be their parents' motivations uh, if we don't necessarily have that same condottieri set up, uh, politically speaking, um, in France? Well, absolutely, it absolutely starts with the court. And, um, you know... <laughs> Generally speaking, the the Italian Renaissance provides a sort of pattern which the rest of Europe finds um, powerfully interesting and attractive. You know, the 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 new learning spreads out of Italy and you know carries with it you know ideas about mathematics and perspective and the Lord knows what, um, but also carries carries with it just as part of the package. Um, the idea that women should be educated. Um, now, in French context, the first women who uh, do this and who you know, get get find themselves a humanist and and, and start learning are are, um, are really the royal family, mm. and they do it for the same reason that. Um, you know, Batista de Montefeltro did because they might end up in charge. Mm. You know, for instance, you know, François Premier um, is uh, imprisoned in Italy for a number of years. So, you know, somebody has to act as his regent, and that somebody is almost invariably female. Mm. So, so, so you find that. You know, as the 15th century wears to an end, 16th century begins, um, women are occupying these sort of diplomatic roles where, uh, you know, command of persuasive language is, is really useful to them, but they're only at this very top level of society. Hmm. So, uh, yes. so, again, I, I, I'd, I'd see it as fundamentally practical. 
staying at that top level of society, could you take us to England and talk through just, uh, I'm sure many people are familiar with the ups and downs of Tudor monarchs, um, but how those particular royals really impacted women's education more broadly beyond just uh, Elizabeth and Mary receiving Latin educations? How did the the makeup of the royal court uh, allow opportunities for women to learn Latin? Yeah, well, Henry VIII, I mean, he's very impressed by what's going on in France. So his court starts to become more humanist. And of course, he marries Catherine of Aragon, um, who was a highly educated Spanish princess. And, you know, it's you know, after the arrival of Catherine of Aragon, um, Mary Tudor, that, that is to say Henry's sister, not his daughter, um, mm-hmm. she starts to learn Latin in, in about 1520 because uh, she, she can see the fashion has changed and, and she does, in fact, briefly become Queen of France. Um, so despite the fact that obviously, you know, Catherine ends up, you know, exiled and separated, she's brought with her a new sophistication in women's culture. So, so that, that remains the case. I mean, so Henry's last wife, Catherine Parr, I mean, was an educated woman. And uh, she oversees the education of her stepchildren. Um, two short reigns, of course, uh, Ed- Edward and uh, Mary Tudor, they continue to be sort of, you know, humanistically directed. I mean, you know, you can't say that Ed- Edward VI, who was only a young boy, had much to do with women Latinists, but uh, his uncle, uh, um, Seymour, who, who was the Lord Protector of England, effectively regent, um, he educated his uh, three youngest daughters up to the nines and they published a, a book of verse, a Latin verse mm-hmm. in Paris. So it's, you know, it's still obviously set central to the culture. And um, Mary Tudor is the patron of um, Mary Bassett, who's the daughter of Margaret Roper, daughter of mm-hmm. uh, St. Thomas More, um, you know, she's, so, so she is producing a culture that's fostering towards women Latinists. And then, of course, by the time you get to Elizabeth, you have this assumption that uh, education, Latin education, knowing who Livy is, all this stuff, is, is part of throneworthiness. You know, anybody who's remotely likely to get near the throne or even marry um, a king is is going to have a full humanist education. Unfortunately, of course, that changes un, under James, who has no interest in learning women whatsoever. In fact, he has no interest in women. Um, so, uh, so you see a, a marked difference by you know. In, in the reign of James, learned ladies were not welcome at court. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, they continue to be learned ladies, but they're, they're not occupying these sort of high-profile positions, not not least, of course, because uh, Latin is ceasing to be the principal diplomatic language. I mean, uh, the education for a, a woman courtier in the 17th century is based in French. French is the fashionable language. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you know, this, this relates not just to rulers' personalities, but also to the place of Latin in the culture more generally. Fascinating. Those, the way that things can change and circumstances and people and style all impact this larger narrative. Um, so that was France and England. Uh, you argue that Spain and Portugal, well, not argue, I'm sure you found in your research that Spain and Portugal have produced fewer learned women than other areas of Europe. And I wonder if you could talk about some of the factors that might have uh, contributed to this lower uh, amount of Latinate women. Well, I think it's actually to do with the competing attraction of religion. Hmm. Um Spain is is the motor of the Counter Reformation. I mean, sort of, you know, think of Philip II, um, and where the you know the really sort of clever and interesting dynamic 
women go is into the church. I mean, think of Teresa of Avila. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she's writing very powerfully in in Spanish. But uh, you know what 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 women of of real sort of capacity do is become nuns. You know, they become they become mystics. Uh, in the case of say Mary of Agreda, I mean she. She's the principal political advisor to Philip III, but uh, she's she's a nun, mm. and she's not she's not a humanist. So and by this, so it's it's just a, it's a it's a diff, differently shaped culture in where humanism, in general, has less weight than than it does in France or, or Italy. And by this point in convents in the Iberian Peninsula, had Latin lost its uh, usefulness? Um, I know, at least in the medieval era, we think of convents as this uh, great resource for women's Latin access. Um, But is that no longer the case by the 16th century? Well, women have to understand enough about Latin to perform the liturgy because, of of course, Mm -hmm. you know, the... The Eucharist and so on; those are, those services are all in Latin. Um, but their their own writing, which is often ex- extensive, I don't know of any Iberian convent which is, you know, any any kind of a, a center of Latin learning. Mm. They're not even translating from Latin. There's so so there's a a few learned ladies knocking around the uh, Spanish and Portuguese courts, but. Uh, the culture as a whole just doesn't seem to find much of a place for for these women. Interesting. So we've been talking about women in courts at this highest level of society, uh, but you also bring our attention to the fact that educated women in the 16th century begin to use their Latin professionally, um, that is, as part of waged labor. So could you talk more about what causes this development um, and what sort of work we find Latin women engaging in uh, in this era? Yes, well, I I think... um... The two principal areas where, where you find learned women engaged in work, it's teaching and printing. Because uh, you know, teaching is, is obvious. Um, I mean, one, one niche which develops, of, of course, is um, the woman teacher of some high-born girl or girls, um, where you know, it might, might be considered safer in since the court eunuch had been abandoned as an institution if if your 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 precious infanta is educated by another woman like Luisa Seguer uh, educating mm-hmm. the infanta maria um rather than entrusting her to a male tutor which you know could cause all kinds of trouble um so so women start turning up as educators or helping their fathers Humanist fathers run a school, or um, uh, sometimes even opening a school of their their own. And uh, as far as printing goes, well, the great majority of what's printed in the 16th century is, of course, in Latin, and hand press book printing is incredibly labour intensive. You know, printers marry the daughters of printers because your wife need to needed to be able to sort of multitask to you know, mind the baby and stir the porridge and, and typeset a page, mm-hmm. all as part of the same day's work. Um, so so printers become a kind of clan. And, um, and it's assumed that women, you know, should be able to take up the slack. And uh, you can't really typeset a page if you, you, you don't understand anything about what's on it. Mm-hmm. Because you've, you've got to be able to read the read the manuscript that you're um, setting from. So, so we could almost uh, think of them so, as... So that produces a, yes, learned women in sort of many corners of Europe. Wonderful. So sticking with those printers for a second, um, it, they're almost like modern copy editors to some degree where they need to be able to tell if the sentences make sense and the words yes. are correct and... Yes, that I mean, would require if you, if, having if, knowledge. If you think of it, there's somebody is sitting there with a manuscript. Not every humanist had it 
a beautiful italic hand by any means. And <laughs> they were also um, prone to using abbreviations. So, so you've got to be able to sort of look at look at what's in front of you and translate it, and you um, can't can't do that unless you recognise that DNS is short for Dominus. Mm. So, so, so yes. I mean, without without Latin, you probably are going to make a complete mess of things. Mm. Fascinating. So. This has all been mostly focused on the 16th century, but you are have encouraged scholars uh, to look to the 17th century as well. Um, you note that there's a general assumption that women Latinists kind of disappear after 1600, uh, but you argue instead that, quote, throughout Europe, there are more women using Latin in the 17th than in the 16th century, and they do so for a wider range of purposes, end quote. Um, could you tell us a little bit about why we have failed to notice these 17th century women? Well, yes, I think there's several reasons. Um, one is about the general shape of culture. And after 1600, Europe's vernaculars are the principal means of literary expression in almost every country. Latin is increasingly the preserve of the universities, law and medicine, um, great masculine bastions that don't admit women. So the assumption is obviously women aren't going to be learning Latin. Um, also, I mean, think about the rise of the novel. Um, there is an absolutely gigantic rise in the number and variety and interest of works authored by women after 1600, but in Europe's many vernaculars. So, uh, so I think that's part of the answer I mean a sort of assumption that Latin doesn't really matter anymore um, and you know if you want to work on women you need to go off and um, you know, work on Af Afrobane or, or somebody like that and um, so, so it's a combination of you know what women are doing you know what most women are doing and an assumption that Latin's just become a, a sort of uh, you know, outmoded bastion of, of certain professions. Hmm. And uh, people just stop stop looking. You know, hmm. you can... Uh, you can do so, you know, there's so, so many interesting things about women's writing and... So, so why go looking for needles in haystacks? I mean, I think it really sort of come pretty much comes down to that. Well, it's encouraging for uh, younger scholars to know that there's lots more out there to go look for. Um, sticking with the 17th century uh, and this shift in attitudes and values. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how the figure of the female prodigy, who you brought up earlier in our discussion of the um, Italian humanists, um, how this attitude changes in the 17th century, particularly amongst uh, learned women themselves, these women who uh, perhaps earlier would have been held up as the emblem for their city. Uh, how are they uh, viewing themselves or presenting themselves um, in this language of prodigy? Well, curiously, the the woman prodigy as a phenomenon continues quite quite merrily through the seventeenth century, and um, because the Stuart Court isn't that sort of place, um, you just don't you know it. It's not a phenomenon of the English world so much, and uh, I must say the you know the English speaking academy does tend to prefer looking at uh, things in England by and large um, <laughs> so Bathua Macon you know who later became a, a schoolmistress turned up at, at the Stuart court uh, saying you know presented as a learned maid who could read and write sort of Greek and Hebrew and Latin and all the rest of it and uh, the king just looked at her and said but can she spin you know so so 
So you can't be a high-profile woman prodigy in England. There just isn't a, a niche. Um, on the other hand, Anna Maria van Trommen, um in Utrecht is, you know, is what is probably the single most famous woman in the country. Um, it's still happening in Italy. Um, Elena Piscopio, who's the first person to take a PhD, which she does in 1678. Uh, again, very high-profile figure. Um, Soruana Maria de la Cruz in, in Mexico is, is another of these sort of prodigious ladies. Um, and uh, one thing that, uh, you know, is you really notice is, is that they are regarded as cultural capital. Mm. That... Um, Although education for women is not greatly encouraged in the Dutch Republic, they're, they're jolly proud of Anna Maria van Sormen. Um But you also find that the the women who have something of this prodigy status very much take notice of each other. So um, Anna Maria is, is sort of writing letters and poems and encouragement to people like Marie de Gournay in France, um, Birgitta Thot, uh, who's translating Seneca in Denmark, um, the uh, you know they're, they're congratulating each other they're, they're, so there's there's very much a a network um, as you know communications in the 16th century uh, in the 17th century are much better so 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 they're writing letters to each other all over Europe and uh, in the case of uh, Sorjuana de la Cruz I mean even beyond Europe. Mm. So it's this expansion of uh, of women and uh, networks and communication uh, that's ongoing. Um, so one of those women in the 17th century uh, who you you bring our attention to is Martha Marquina um, in Italy, and I am personally a big fan of her poetry. So I was wondering if you could introduce our listeners to her as well and talk about how her life really highlight some of the major arguments of your book as we expand our study of women and Latin beyond just uh, the well-known figures of the 15th and 16th centuries. Yeah, well, the interesting thing about Martha Marquina is is that she doesn't fit with um, the pattern woman Latinist of the 17th century. Uh, she's not a totem to her city, which is which is Rome. You know, she she's not occupying a public high profile place. She's not a member of academies. So, you know, all all of the things. You know, she's not writing letters to other women. You know, all of the things I was just talking about as the typical, you know, learned phenomenal woman of of that time. Uh, she's working class, and she's effectively an autodidact. Um, her mother died when she was seven. And her father, who was who made soap and sold brooms, so that you know they're at an artisan level of society. Um, he can't afford anybody to look after his two boys, so um, he essentially tells um, Martha Marquina to bring up her brothers. Uh, the brothers are sent to the oratory, uh, the um, Chiesa Nova, which was sort of probably the nearest church to where they lived. It's certainly very near where we know um, the Marquina's shop was. And um, the oratory were a new order who specialised in the care of the urban poor. And oratorians took on charitable projects. So um, one of the oratorian fathers takes an interest in the boys and starts educating them. And when they go home to their sister... She refu basically refuses to feed them until they've disgorged what they've learned that day. <laughs> so, so she so she learns Latin kind of second hand. And um, the headmaster and you know Ludovico Santolino, has said the, um, he calls on Marquino father and sort of says, mm, you know, your sons are beginning to interest me because, of course, by the time they've explained everything to Martha. I mean, their own, they must have been phenomenally well prepared for schoolboys. 
I mean, they 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 had to. I mean, they they were effectively learning and teaching at, at the same time. So, you know, my um, my guess is that Sandalina was thinking that um, you know these these kids are so you know committed to learning. Um, I wonder if we might be sponsoring them, you know, into into a seminary to become priests which is a major form of upward mobility in, in 17th century Rome. Uh, anyway, Marquino says, well, I don't know anything about that. Um, you'll have to ask Martha, at which point Santolino discovers that, you know, Martha is sitting at home, desperate for books, learning as much Latin as, as she possibly can. Um, and in fact, the oratorians take her under their wing. They, um, they start lending her books, uh, they help her with her education. Um, they try without success to think of something something to do with her. I mean, does she want to run a school? No, she doesn't. Does she want to become a nun? No, actually, she doesn't. Uh, does she want a university chair? Uh, no, she really doesn't. Uh, again, it would be horribly exposed. Um, and so, you know, it's socially quite beyond her um so basically she doesn't marry um she her own profession is as a gold embroiderer for which there was a tremendous ready market in um 17th century rome you know making um beautiful things for the altar you know um chalice veils all that sort of stuff and um so she she sits in the attic um embroidering with gold and thinking about well picking a subject for meditation while, while she sews and I, I think she's sort of stitching and thinking and um, produces these short intense reflective religious poems um, you know based based on her her morning's meditation I mean it puts her embroidery down you know picks picks up a pen and writes it down you know once it's clear in her mind and um so so she she's taken under the wing of these spadas who are a themselves a family that's sort of risen from from nowhere from a little place called brisighella and um so by the time martha marquino attracts their attentions there's a Sparta, who's become a cardinal, and there are several more cardinals in the family, um, and the the work that we have of Marquinas is essentially preserved by the Spadas. She, she's a protege of theirs. Um, she dies very, she dies young at forty three of a fever. But then, in seventeenth century Rome, people did because you know fever was endemic. I mean, you just caught typhus off the Tiber. Um, mm. But uh, she was much res- clearly she was much respected. She was taken completely seriously as a poet, and you know she had her own little social niche, which was is essentially with cultivated churchmen. So um, very peculiar story, not what anybody's expecting at all. But she is a very good poet. Yeah, I would encourage anyone who's interested to look at her poems. Um... We're talking right now in the build up to Christmas and she has some lovely ones uh, that have that meditative effect that you were discussing. Uh, She just returns to those themes again and again. Um, So Martha Marquina, 17th century woman in Latin, changing the way that we have often thought about it. Uh, But your book doesn't limit itself to the 17th century. And you uh, write about women in the 18th and 19th century. And again, just this flourishing of women Latinists. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about uh, what the relationship between women and Latin looks like in these latter two centuries? Yes, well, I, I think by the time you get to the 18th century, women are learning Latin because they really want to. You get some people like, say, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, yeah, a famously inquiring mind, you know, one of the people who introduced vaccination to um, to Europe, you know, interesting, interested person. Well, by the time she's 11, she's rummaging around in her father's library teaching herself Latin. So uh, that's the sort of person 
who decides they want to learn Latin. Um, and uh, one very interesting development of the 18th century is that women start learning Latin or teaching themselves Latin because they're interested in science. Mm. So you get women astronomers. Um, you get you start getting women doctors. Or, uh, you get uh, women mathematicians. Um, there's a, a number of women, most notably the Marquise de Châtelet, who's a particular friend of Voltaire's. Uh, Marquise de Châtelet is produces the standard translation into French of Newton's Principia, mm. a very difficult text. There's uh, several women who are extremely interested in in Newton, you know, in, in the what's that, the sort of cutting edge physics of of the 17th century. Um, so, so yes, I mean there are contexts like. Um, you know, botany, the new and the you know the, these new sciences, um, where where women are sort of sort of intellectually attracted, and Latin is a means to an end. And uh, you start getting women knocking on the doors of the professions. Um, there's a you know a woman in Germany who persuades Peter the Great to let her. Joined the medical school at Halle as so a special you know, dispensation, um, and in order to do so, she has to be able to write and defend a Latin thesis, which she does. Um, but a, another thing you get, which really comes out of this sort of salon culture of seventeenth-century France, is um, that women start taking up places as public intellectuals, and I'm thinking of people like you know. Hannah Moore or, or Madame Lafayette, um, if you sort of drill down into their past, you'll very often find that they, they were they were Latin literate, that, uh, you know, that their appearance as you know, public figures, you know, write, writing published essays or what, whatever it is, um, is based or, you know, buttressed by the fact that they, they, um, they're thoroughly educated. So, um, you know, in the 19th century, I mean, I'd, I'd point to George Eliot, deeply famous for, um, obviously, as a novelist, um, studied by, you know, studied in every university uh, English department in, in the world. Uh, but, it, you know, students of George Eliot aren't necessarily even told that when she was still a young woman called Marian Evans, she was translating the philosopher Baruch Spinoza. Again, you know, very difficult work in, in Latin. Um, so, uh, so, so yes, I mean, women are using Latin as a means to an end. Either they, they want some kind of a public position, you know, as an essayist or somebody that journalists come to for opinion, um, or, or they want to enter a profession or, or they, they want to study physics, you know, that, that sort of reason. And uh, if you do want to study physics or something, it's you learn Latin, that's taken totally for granted, so nobody ever mentions it. Hmm. So women Latinists are still here, still there, uh, and doing interesting things, even if it's different than... Uh, yeah, what then by the end of the 19th before. century, the universities start opening to women, so... You know, classics departments start acquiring women, and you know, there is since then, you know, a legion of women have done distinguished work on Latin. Mm. Well, as a senior scholar in the field, what are your hopes for the study of Latinate women going forward? Um, I could answer that in one word editing. <laughs> um, two words and translating um, but uh, you know when I was uh, working on um, you know, a book I wrote many years ago Women Latin Poets I found I was drowning in Women Latin so I couldn't stop you know I was trying to produce an overview but I kept coming across some you know sizable and interesting 
literary production, thinking somebody must edit this. Some, you know, why, you know, why has nobody edited Willa Trudis, um, who was a twelfth-century English abbess who who wrote one of the most feminist works of the twelfth century, which which is a, a long poem about Susanna and the elders. You know, it's it's a completely countercultural document, you know, and that's never been edited. Um, you know, there's miles of of stuff that nobody's looked at. Um, you're saying Mar- Marquina, I mean, really interesting poet, really interesting life, and uh, you know, people some people are starting to look at Marquina, but there is not at the moment an edition with facing page translation, and one is desperately needed. Um, so 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 yes, I mean, you know, pick an author and do something about her is is what I would advise any younger woman who wants to get into um into working on on women Latinists. Well, encouraging words for for those uh, listening who are interested. Um, Jane, it's really been lovely talking with you today. Uh, a final question before we sign off is. How has your work on women in Latin in the early modern period led you uh, in new directions for research? Uh, or are you yourself taking up the editing and translating task? Uh, what's on the horizon for you these days? Well, I'm actually in rather different directions. Um, in 2000, I, I moved to Aberdeen, where I was Regis Chair, and uh, I'm now in Oxford, but I got I mean, Aberdeen is a very interesting place, and I got very interested in Scottish Latin literature and the distinctiveness of the the Scottish literary tradition. And um, so, so since work, you know, since doing all this stuff about women Latinists, um, I've also done a lot about uh, you know the humanist culture of Scotland. And another area that I I got into was recusants. Mm. I was interested in exiles um, and and so I've been doing a lot of work on the sort of Catholic counterculture of of the early modern and in particular on um, the interior lives of women in one way or another so um, yeah kind of one thing leads to another but it doesn't necessarily kind of lead to the next step on the path with women in Latin you know just all, all it all weaves in and out, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, I look forward to reading whatever uh, you produce next um, and learning more from you about what you discover. Again, thank you so much, Jane, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, and to our audience, thank you for joining us for this discussion of Women and Latin in the Early Modern Period by Jane Stevenson. I've been your host, Elspeth Curry, and you've been listening to new books in early modern history. Take care.